0: Now you can turn to Psalm 2. As we just read there in Acts chapter 4, the believers in the early church, in light of being told they couldn't speak or teach in Jesus' name, they gather together and they pray. And their prayer is informed by Psalm 2. We saw that there in verses 25 and 26. They quoted from Psalm 2. Why did the nations rage or why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And we'll unpack that a little bit here in, in Psalm 2. But as we're opening up this new series here, as we're kicking off this psalm series uh, in the summer, I want to begin with a bit of an introduction to where we're going and the approach that we're taking here. As James mentioned, last summer we covered 13 psalms, and we got 14 more this summer, so like 11 more years to go before we finish. Um, But last summer we began with Psalm 1 as an intro to the whole collection of the Psalms. And then last summer, what we did, we looked at the Psalms in four different categories. We looked at creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And some of the questions that we asked that we wrestled through some of these tough questions is, why are we here, right? Why are we here in, why are we here in this world? Why is there something rather than nothing? So this idea of creation. The second was, what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with us? And we talked about the results of the fall. then we asked, is there any hope? Is there any hope of things getting better in this world? And that was the category of redemption. And then how is it all going to end? Is there anything after death? And that was looking at consummation. And again, we're going to be asking a lot of these similar questions this summer, but we're going to take a little bit of a different approach, which James explained uh, earlier. You can actually, if you go to that resources page, there's two different files on there right now. One is a resources guide. The other one is a schedule uh, for the psalms. So you can see every psalm that we're preaching, on what day you can see who's preaching. I uh, would encourage you, please pray for us as we're preparing to, to share God's Word. Uh, take the time that week, if you can, to, to dig into that individual psalm a little bit. There's also a reading plan there on the right-hand side. So we've broken up the psalms into 14 different weeks, and so if you want to like, go a little slower through the psalms, you can follow that. So that, that's available there on the website. And before I talk a little bit more about the approach that we're taking this summer, I want to to attempt to answer two questions. The first is, just in general, why do we need the Psalms? Why do we need the Psalms as a church? I'm not just talking about Livingstone Church. Why does the church throughout the world, the Church of Jesus Christ, why do we need the Psalms? And then the second question is, why do we need the Psalms right now? Why do we need the Psalms as those living in America in 2020 in the midst of what feels like very perilous times? Do the Psalms speak to us about what we're experiencing here and now, thousands of years after they were written? Do they still speak to us? One of the books that I recommend on the recommended resources list is a book uh, by Christopher Ashe, Psalms for You. This is a great series, uh, this it's, you know, Galatians for you, John for you. That's the, the title of all the books. Um, these are written at a very popular level. You can do a personal Bible study with this, or you can do a group study. Uh, very accessible, not super technical. It doesn't get into a lot of original language stuff um, and a lot of good application questions. So if you're looking for something to dig into this summer, uh, he covers 32 different Psalms pretty in-depth. Uh, so this is a great resource, Christopher Ash, Psalms for You. But I just want to give you a taste of, of what he's talking about in this book and kind of what our approach is going to be this summer. I want to read a couple paragraphs uh, from here. He begins in his introduction, and his, the bold heading is, Come, learn to pray. He says, In many parts of the Christian church today, the Psalms are a neglected treasure. Many churches are like a poverty-stricken house with incalculable riches, forgotten, neglected, moth-eaten, and dusty in the attic. Let us bring the Psalms out and revel in the wonder they offer, a fullness and richness of relationship with God, undreamt of by so many of us half-starved Christians. So So I want to invite you to come with me on a journey to learn to pray. This is exactly what the Psalms are in the Bible to do. The Psalms give a window into how Jesus learned to pray in his fully human life. And they are how the people of Jesus are to pray as the Spirit of Jesus leads us in praying and praising by the Psalms. Then in the next section, the heading is Come, Learn to Feel. So come, learn to pray, and come, learn to feel. He says the Psalms are God's chosen way to engage our thinking and our feeling in a way that is passionate, thoughtful, true, and authentic. The Psalms show us how to express our varied feelings, but more than that, they reorder our disordered affections so that we feel deeper desires for what we ought to desire, more urgent aversion to that from which we need to flee, and a greater longing for the honor of God in the health of Christ's church. The Psalms form within us a richer palette of rightly directed emotions. It is not so much that the Psalms resonate with us as that they shape us so that we most deeply resonate with the God-given yearnings they so movingly express. So how are we to pray? How are we to feel? He goes on later in the introduction to talk about what we are to do in response. So we are, throughout the psalms this summer, if you're taking notes, we're going to be attempting to answer three kind of main, kind of broad questions in each psalm. Uh, Now, we might not directly have these in our outlines and and unpack them exactly, but if I walk up to you after the service and I ask you these questions, I want you to be able to give me an answer, okay? So I might do that. Um, But these questions come from Dr. Mark Futado's book, Interpreting the Psalms. He's one of our professors at RTS, And he calls them the covenant questions, talking about our relationship with God and others. And notice how these questions and these relationships here, uh, in these questions, kind of reflect our vision statement as a church. We are a community of Christ followers called to know, love, and serve God and others. Okay, So we have that element of our relationship with God and our relationship with others, that idea of that covenant relationship. And the emphasis is... What we're called to know God, right? So we talk about our head. We're called to love God with our heart, and we're called to serve God with our hands, right? It's a holistic approach to the Christian life, knowing, loving, and serving God and others. So here are the questions. What does this text teach me to believe? Okay, head, right? What does this text teach me to believe? What does this text teach me to do with my hands, right? What am I to go out and do in response to What I've heard and what I've learned. What does this text teach me to feel with my heart? Again, James already mentioned the categories that we're going to look at, and we're going to look at uh, the Psalms in in these six different categories this summer over 14 weeks. Uh, And we're kicking it all off here with Psalm 2, uh, which we saw quoted in Acts 4. And it's quoted several other times in the New Testament. So this is a very significant Psalm. It has a lot of deep connections Uh, To Christ and to his work. So last summer we kicked off our series with Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 serve together as an introduction to the whole collection of 150 psalms. And it's really important that we take them together. And I'm actually going to read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together here in a moment. But first I want to give you a little bit of a picture of how they function. You know, if you're just sometimes like Maybe you're having a bad day, and you're like, I need to read some psalms, and you just flip open randomly, like, to the middle of the psalms, and you just point, right? Like, point your finger and pick a psalm. That's okay, right? I mean, that's okay. You can read them randomly. But you have to understand that they're not just—it's not just put together randomly. Like, someone didn't just come together and say, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, or roll some dice and, like— Put, set them all out in order. That's not how it worked. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 actually serve very clearly as an introduction, and the Psalms are actually broken up into five different books. And we see these themes from Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 played out in all five books of the Psalms. So O. Palmer Robertson, in his book, The Flow of the Psalms, which is also recommended in that resources folder, He calls them the two poetic pillars that escort the reader into the temple for the book of Psalms. So imagine walking into the temple, walking into the house of worship to go and worship God, and Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the pillars that are holding up the gate as you enter into the house of worship, as you enter into the temple to worship God. Dr. Futado similarly points to the significance of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as giving us the purpose and the message of the whole collection. So the purpose is found in Psalm 1. It's the instruction manual along the path of blessing. We see the word law in our English translation, verse 2 of of Psalm 1. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. If you have the ESV, you'll see the footnote there on, on the word law in uh, verse 2 down below says instruction. It's the Hebrew word Torah, right? It's the, it's the word for God's, his law and his instruction. So really it's this all-encompassing picture of everything that God teaches us to do and to believe. So that's the first pillar, right? That's the purpose of the Psalms, are to teach us what to believe about God in Psalm 1. And then Psalm 2 is the message. And the message is, the Lord reigns. God is the mighty king. The kingship of God is a theme that runs all throughout the Psalms. really dominates the entire book of 150 Psalms, especially as it relates to God's Messiah. So both of these Psalms point us to Jesus and are only perfectly fulfilled by him. That's something that we'll attempt to unpack as we go through the Psalms this summer. Okay, that's a lot of introduction, right? A lot of kind of where are we going? What are we trying to do here? Um, But I hope this helps kind of set a good course for us. uh, And then you can come back to these things as we go throughout the summer and kind of remember what we're trying to accomplish here. So let's go now. Let's go to the scriptures. Let's hear God's holy word. Uh, Let's hear what he has to say to us in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the wicked, the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, who take refuge in him this is the word of the lord let's pray father as we come to these psalms these grand pictures of of your instruction of your law of your word to us of the reminder of what it means to live a blessed life by obeying your commands by delighting in you and and meditating on your word. Lord, we ask that you would write these things on our hearts, that we would look to you as our king, that we would look to your son, the anointed one, that we would bow the knee to him, that we would kiss the son. Father, speak through your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've asked some kind of big overarching questions about the Psalms, Why do we need them, right? Why does the church need the Psalms? Why do we need them today? And now we're going to zoom in a little bit here uh, on Psalm 2. And just as we saw the contrast in Psalm 1 between the wicked and the righteous, uh, we also see two different responses here in Psalm 2 to the Lord. And we're going to ask the question, which is the title of the message this morning, are we raging or are we refuging? Are we raging or are we refuging? I want to share with you, as we open up Psalm 2 here, uh, from another book that I read this past year that I think is pretty timely and insightful. It's called How the Nations Rage? Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. It's written by a guy named Jonathan Lehman. Uh, He's a pastor in the D.C. area. Um works with Nine Marks Ministries. Uh, Fantastic book about, and he wrote this in 2018. It's pretty incredible just how two years later, a lot of the things that he was kind of talking about are like starting to happen. Um, And not in like a weird, he wasn't like trying to prophesy about the future, but he's just talking about the division in our nation and kind of where things are going. But the title of the Of the book, you'll notice how the nation's rage comes from Psalm 2, right? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And one of the things I love about this book also is that it focuses on how is the church to respond. It's not just what we're to think or to feel or to do as individual Christians, but how are we as the church to engage the world around us as ambassadors of the king? The first chapter is titled, A Nation Raging a church unchanging. and Just think about that, right? Think about that in our current moment. A nation raging, a church unchanging. And Lehman points out that if we are going to live in our culture as faithful Christians who only bow the knee to King Jesus, that we are in for a battle and we will face the rage of the nations. Now, the thing I love about his book is his call is not for us to just fight more, right? We've already got enough of that. He's not like, all right, Christians, we need to rally together and we need to fight, okay? No, he's saying we need to align ourselves with our victorious king. He is the one who fights his battles. We saw it in our catechism questions, right? He is the one who promises to win the battle against sin and death and wickedness on our behalf. We don't need to do the fighting but in order for us to align ourselves with him we must first examine our allegiances listen to the questions he asks here he's talking about the battle kind of the battle that we're in he says here's an awkward question that the reality of the battle raises how often do you think Americans think of psalm 2 when asked about verses on politics in the bible more uncomfortably, how often do we locate America in Psalm 2? Yes, one of those raging nations and peoples plotting against the Lord and his Messiah is America. And then he asks, kind of punchily, Or did you think America was exempt from Psalm 2's indictment? I'll confess, he says, it's an idea that makes me Uncomfortable. It almost feels like criticizing your home. And If you want to wrestle with those tensions, it's a great book to think, how can I be thankful for the country that I live in, that God has placed me in, and how can I live as a citizen of, a, of another country ultimately? So as we come here to Psalm 2, we do need to ask ourselves, where does our allegiance lie are we, are, are we identifying ourselves with those described here in the first three verses of Psalm 2? Those who rage against the Lord? Those who trust in their own way of doing things? Is that where we're at? This is not a pretty picture here at the beginning of Psalm 2. This is a description of utter rebellion. And it starts off described in very broad terms. First, the nations are raging, and the, the peoples are plotting in vain. But then it kind of starts to get more narrow, right? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. So there's this very concerted effort from a very broad spectrum of all people down to these rulers of these individual nations who are, have this concerted effort against the Lord and against who? His anointed, okay? This is very important here. Against the Lord and his anointed. The Hebrew word here for anointed is Mashiach. okay? You don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure out what Mashiach means. Anyone? Messiah. Very good, okay? This word here is the word where we get the word Messiah, okay? That's the anointed one. The kings of the earth, the rulers, are raging against God's Messiah. And obviously, as we get to the New Testament, that word gets translated into Christ. So when we see the the Greek word Christos, that comes from the word Messiah that we have in the Old Testament, or anointed, anointed one, it has the same meaning. James and I were joking in the office the other day about uh, I don't even know what we were talking about, but the, the word to the word for Christ or, or Messiah means like to smear oil on. It means anointed one to like rub oil on. So I don't even know what we were talking about, but just how to translate that and whatever. But that's the picture of just like rubbing, dumping oil on him and anointing him. Okay, smearing oil on. He is the anointed one who is set apart and purified for the Lord. Well, how does this rebellion against the Lord's Messiah, how does this play out here in verse 3? They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This reaction is ultimately a result of the fall. It's saying, don't you dare tell me what to do, God. How dare you try to control my life? How dare you try to bring me into your service and make me bow down before you? You. There's some interesting parallel imagery in Jeremiah chapter 30. When the Lord promises for his people, he promises restoration for Israel and Judah. He promises that he will bring them back from captivity in Babylon. Jeremiah 30, starting in verse 8, he says, And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts that I will break his yoke, the king of Babylon, I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds. It's the exact same language here used in Psalm 2. So God is saying to his people who are in captivity, I'm going to burst your bonds and I'm going to set you free. And he says, Foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. God here promises deliverance from bondage for his people and that he will raise up David, their king, for them. Now, if you just do a quick Bible timeline in your head, David's been dead for over 300 years already when Jeremiah is prophesying. So what's going on here? God is saying, I'm going to set you free and I'm going to raise up David, your king, for you. Okay? Obviously, David's not coming back, right? We just saw... In the transfiguration a couple weeks ago, uh, Moses and Elijah on the, are on the mountain with Jesus. David's not there, right? There's no, there's no picture of, of David coming back to reign on earth as a king again. So what's going on here, right? There's, there's something going on here. So this is this is really interesting here because the nations, they want release from bondage, but they want to be their own kings, right? God says that he'll release his people from bondage to the king of Babylon, break his yoke from their necks, but not so that they can just be free to do whatever they want to do, but that they would yoke themselves to the Lord, that they would be bound in faith and obedience to him. He is the only true sovereign and the only true king. And we see that in his response to their rebellion the rebellion of the nations in verses 4 through 6. But before we look at that, let's back up to the very beginning of Psalm 2 with that first word, why. Almost all the commentators that I read agree that this is not a question of inquiry. The psalmist isn't like, hmm, I wonder why the nations are raging against the Lord. It's a question of astonishment. Christopher Ashe in his book here, he points out that the question could be phrased, how stupid can you get? Right? How stupid can you get, nations? Here is the Lord of all the earth, and you're saying, Break his bonds. Let us be free and do what we want to do. How stupid to rage against the Lord. And it is sheer stupidity, which we see in verses 4 through 6. The Lord is described here as the one who sits in the heavens. Again, this is a very clear statement of his rule and his authority over all of heaven and all of earth. And what does he do? He laughs, right? He just laughs at them. How stupid can you be, nations? Why would you rage against me? He laughs, and he holds them in derision or or mocks them. Now, we might read this and say, well, that's not very nice. Like, didn't God wake up and see his Twitter feed in the morning and see the Be Kind hashtag and say like, Maybe I shouldn't laugh at the nations today. But we saw this in our catechism questions. How Christ executes his office as king and how he he is exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God. In both of those answers, we saw the language of Christ as king protecting his church and restraining and overcoming and subduing our enemies who are identified here as those who oppose God's rule. Now, we have to be careful here. We can't come at this from a worldly point of view, like our enemies are America's enemies, or our enemies are those who are from an opposing political party, or our enemies are those of another race or ethnicity. The only right we have to claim anyone as being our enemy as Christians are those who ultimately oppose are opposed to God and are opposed to his rule. And we know how Jesus told us to interact with our enemies, right? To love them and pray for those who persecute them. Think about the believers there in Acts 4, right after everything had happened, right? They're not calling down fire on, on Herod and Pontius Pilate and just saying, we're going to take up arms and we're going to, you know, storm the city and all this stuff. No, pray for your enemies. Pray for God's will to be done. And we must remember that we, if we are in Christ, it is because, if we are in Christ, it is because our rebellion was crushed by the grace of God. And our bonds were broken so that we might serve him freely and joyfully. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5, that God reconciled us to himself by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, right? Right? We weren't just like strolling along someday, you know, fist in God's face saying, I don't want anything to do with you. And then like, oh, here's, I'm going to cross over into the good camp and just like stroll into God's camp and everything's going to be cool. No, right? We did not come into God's, we didn't come to God's side on our own just because we felt like it. And we felt like, oh, I'm just going to do something different today. We were raging against him and he saved us by his grace. We need to get that picture straight here as we think about Psalm 2 and as we think about how the Lord interacts with his enemies and how we need to interact maybe with those who might hate us. But again, this is not, this is not a popular view in our day, right? This isn't something that is really tolerated. You're not going to win friends and influence people by going out and wearing a shirt that says, you're God's enemy, submit to him, Right? And in a sense, it's not our job to pronounce that word of judgment against people, but it's to declare that the judgment that we deserved, right, as enemies of God, has fallen on Christ so that we do not have to bear it. I think there is a place in a personal conversation with someone, after you've shared how God has been gracious and merciful to you, to call that person to repentance, to say that, you know, if you don't, trust the Lord, like you are under his wrath, right? But that doesn't, that's, that's not just the first leading thing that we just blast people with all the time without first showing our humility and what God has done in our lives, right? So Psalm 2 doesn't quite lay out yet this theology of the cross at this point in redemptive history. But again, when the apostles prayed in Acts 4 and quoted from Psalm 2— And then said that all of those gathered together in Jerusalem were gathered against God's holy servant, Jesus, whom he anointed. Notice who he lists there. Herod and Pontius Pilate, right? The kings and rulers. He says, along with the Gentiles and people of Israel. So that's covering all the nations to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. He's talking there about the crucifixion and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension and the sitting at God's right hand in fulfillment of Psalm 2. Jesus fulfilled the things in Psalm 2 in his life and his death and his resurrection. We see that in verse 6 here. As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And the description here of this anointed one, the king, it continues in verses 7 through 9. The anointed one, the king, he is the son of God, and he is promised the nations as his heritage or inheritance, and the ends of the earth as his possession. And notice what that entails in verse 9 breaking them with a rod of iron and dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now this language sounds harsh, but we must, remo- we must remember that the Lord is totally just in carrying out his wrath against sin. But God is not just some angry, capricious deity sitting in heaven, just wringing his hands, waiting to zap people with his wrath. This is why we must read our Bibles carefully. And we must study them well. Most English translations have a footnote. You'll see it if you have the ESV and the NIV, NASB all have it. There's a footnote in verse 9 for the word break. If you look down below, what does this say? Oh, that's the long one. Sorry. It's the, I'll explain it. <laughs> this is the, so it's a, it's a revocalization. It's meaning if you change some of the vowel pointings in the Hebrew... It can it's basically like the wor- this word sounds the same and it can mean two different things, okay? It if you've revocalized this word, it can sound like you shall rule, okay? So you shall break them with a rod of iron, or you shall rule them with a rod of iron, is another way that it can be read. And this word here for rule in the Hebrew is the word for shepherd. Psalm 23. Most people's favorite psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. That word for shepherd is the same word that could be translated here, the word that's break or rule. It would be the rule word. The Lord is my ruler. The Lord is the one who rules, who shepherds, who guides me, right? Okay, the Lord is my shepherd. He shepherds here. Notice how this idea of ruling or shepherding is then carried over into the New Testament, where this exact verse here, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This exact verse is quoted in the book of Revelation three separate times. The first time, interestingly, is in chapter 2, verses 26 to 27. Now, if you remember first couple chapters of Revelation here, messages to the churches, right? Jesus is speaking to the churches. Here he's speaking to the church in Thyatira. He says, "'The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end,' to him I will give authority over the nations. Interesting, okay? And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. So the word that gets translated into the Greek and then into our English, rule, this is the word shepherd, If you see the word shepherd in the New Testament, if you see it translated as shepherd, it's the same exact word here that is translated rule in this verse. So the ruling that is promised to believers here as authority over the nations, it's derivative authority that comes from Christ as he received it from his father. And I think this idea here needs to inform the way that we seek to engage the nations around us here and now, With the gospel. It's not because we are seeking some authority or rule independent of Christ and his kingdom, but we are seeking to see people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation come and pay homage to him and bow down their knee to his rule. This idea of ruling and shepherding is to bring them in, to bring people in to the king. And that is how Psalm 2 ends, then, with this warning to do this, this warning to come before the king, the kings and the rulers. You see here in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, we saw that back in the beginning, right? Verse 2 Kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. They are told here to be wise, to be warned, to serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice in him with trembling. Now, in theory, this sounds kind of crazy because earthly kings bow down to no one, right? If you bow down to someone else, you're no longer the king. There can be, in in earthly terms, if a king is going to reign over his dominion, there can be no one greater, right? He is top one, top dog in charge. But that's not how it works in God's economy. God is the only sovereign ruler, And his son reigns supreme over all the nations. These kings and rulers and nations and peoples, they all must submit to the one true king. And this warning, it doesn't just go out to actual human kings and actual human rulers. It goes out to everyone. It goes out to the entire world. And there is one and only one appropriate response we see in verse 12. Kiss the Son, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Kiss the Son, bow the knee and surrender to Him. Pay homage to Him, or you will perish. The choice is before all of us. Will we rage against Him, or will we refuge in him, in him. That is the challenge. And like the drum beat that I keep trying to hit for us over and over and over, this is not just a one-time decision. This isn't, well, I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was a kid. I trusted Jesus a long time ago, but now I've been back on the throne of my life for the last 20 or 30 years or however long it's been. It doesn't work that way. The daily grind of faith and repentance in the Christian life is a constant call to set aside our rebellion, to put to death our raging against the Lord, and to live the blessed life that is laid before us in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Notice, look at the beginning of of Psalm 1. How does Psalm 1 open? Blessed or happy. We talked about that last summer, right? We can actually translate this word happy. Blessed or happy is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, delights in the law of the Lord, meditates on his law. That's the description of the righteous person. Now go all the way to the end of Psalm 2. How does Psalm 2 end? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay? This is not an accident here that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are put together. It's not an accident that Psalm 1 opens up, blessed is the one And Psalm two ends, Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. The one who meditates on the Lord's law and delights in His law is the same one who takes refuge in Him. Right? This this inclusio, it's it's very common in the Hebrews and that in the Hebrew language, and that shows us again that Psalm one and Psalm two were put there very deliberately to communicate this message to us. If you want to live a blessed life, and I'm not talking prosperity gospel nonsense here, right? If you want to live a life blessed by God, delight in him. Meditate on his law and take refuge in him, right? He is our provider, right? He gives us the instruction, and he's our protector. We run to him for refuge. So we are to look to his instruction, and we are to trust in his Messiah, Who then is the one who can fulfill all of what is spoken in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2? Surely not us, right? The blessed man in Psalm 1 is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. He lived the blessed life. He obeyed the law of the Lord perfectly so that we might stand before the judge robed in his righteousness It is Christ and Christ alone that we are to bow down to. Kiss the Son. Bow before him. Surrender your life to him over and over and over again. And may your soul find refuge from the storms of life as you flee to him. Let us pray. Father, what a beautiful picture you have given us of your majesty, of your son seated on his throne, of your rule over all the earth, over all nations, over all peoples. And as we look forward with hope, as we look forward with expectation, to the day when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered together before your throne, worshiping you. God, we thank you for this picture that we see in Psalm 2 that reminds us that what we are to do is to kiss the Son, is to bow before Him, is to surrender our lives to Him every day. God, would you make us a people who do this, not just as individuals, Lord, but as a people that we would live out these realities, that we would believe them, that we would do them. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises to us. Thank you that you are our protector and our provider. May we go out from here as people who are changed by you and who go out to seek your glory and the good of those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.